Well, Merry Christmas, Village Heights. I love this time of year. Um, I love getting to celebrate with all of you and just the warmth and joy of the season. Um, this time of year, I'm always so, so thankful for the staff here at Village Heights, for Tanner and Jenny and Kelsey. Um, they do so much to help us spread this Christmas cheer all around our neighborhood. Um, so it just, you know, I just have the warm fuzzies like all December long, and I hope that you do too. Um, I passionately believe that the world is separated into two different types of people, and I need to know what kind of person you are today um, because it really matters for the rest of this collection. There are people who are pre-Thanksgiving Christmas people, and then there are other people who are incorrectly post-Thanksgiving Christmas people. Are you right or are you wrong? Who's the pre-Thanksgiving Christmas? I'm probably the only one. I'm usually, like, I'm Buddy the Elf, thank you, crazy town over there. Um, I am Buddy the Elf, and I am passionate about Christmas. And our house is a pre-Thanksgiving Christmas house. And the reason is Christmas is a little bit chaotic for us. I don't know if you know what we do for a living, but it's this. December is like the one time a year that we work, so it's a little crazy, and if my theory is if we're going to do all of that work to decorate our house, if we're going to schlep all of those things out of the attic and we're going to spread Christmas cheer all around our house, I want to be able to enjoy it, and as soon as Thanksgiving hits, it's like our lives are just a mad rush until the end of the year, and so I want to be able to enjoy the fruits of my labor, my very intense, very intricate labor decorating our house for Christmas. Because as soon as that tree is up, it never fails. It's like within just a few days, chaos ensues and it's a mad dash to the end of the year. But in the midst of the hustle and bustle, I love that our family manages to enjoy a few of our own traditions and traditions are so interesting to me because you never set out to be like, okay, we're going to start a tradition. Here we go. Ready? Does everyone have the same idea? Cool. Let's do it. Like a tradition just happens because you do it so much. So for us, a tradition is Christmas movie night. That's a huge tradition. We have movie night regularly in our house, but at Christmas time, we, I, whew, we've seen like every Christmas movie ever created on Netflix, on Disney, like we've seen them all. And I love that. I love that that's a tradition in our house. Another tradition that we have is just getting in the car and going for a drive just to look at Christmas lights. We'll drive through River Oaks. We'll drive through Tanglewood. Well, just to see who has the best lights on the street. We definitely vote. Last year, we started something cool that I think will turn into a tradition um, because our family's a little bit competitive, like most of the time in a pretty way, sometimes in an ugly way. But last year, we started Christmas bingo um, while we look at lights. And it's so much fun. Like, we give the boys, like, daubers. And while we're driving, if you see it, you get to boop it. And then I get a bunch of stuff from, like, the dollar store or, like, the dollar spot at Target or whatever. And I fill it in a bag. And if you get a bingo, you get to pull out a prize. And then you get a new card. And it turns into a whole thing. Um, if you would like Christmas bingo for your crazy family, I'm more than happy to share that with you. Just shoot me an email. And um, you can be a lunatic like me. Love it. Christmas time. Last year... We had a blast with it, and Declan, uh, he even asked, like, last week, he was like, are we going to do bingo again? I loved beating Gage, and I was like, yes, absolutely. For us, when we have a chunk of time that is not taken over by a party or a project or a gathering or something like that, we try 
to maximize the moment and make the most special memories that we possibly can. Because there's also a good amount of chaos here at Village Heights, and we're involved in all of it. Today starts the 12 days of Christmas, and I hope that you will take a name or two or seven off the tree in the lobby. I hope that you will help us make Christmas happen for 70 kids from 25 different families. It's the biggest our giving tree has ever been. And at some point, somebody's got to organize those presents and deliver them. It's me. I, I do that. And the staff, they do it too. But we do a lot of work around that. But before that can even happen, this Friday, Bill and I are hosting our celebration dinner where we get to honor all of you for your audacious generosity, where we get to say thank you for dedicating your time, talent, and treasure to support this house. And then on Saturday, all of us together, this is a family event, we're hosting Santa at Marmion Park, and we need your help volunteering at that because we're going to invite the entire neighborhood to come and get their picture with Santa. And then next Sunday, We'll kick off our shoebox project for our neighbors at Heights Manor. Um, and so I hope you'll take a box there, and then we'll need to deliver those. And then on Sunday the 11th, we're going to take up an offering for our friends at Soul Mission. And then on the 18th, we're going to have family Christmas where all of us get to come together and enjoy some hot chocolate and some Christmas cheer and some carols. And then on Christmas Eve at 530, we're hosting a candlelight gathering. Oh, and before any of that can happen, at some point, Bill and I need to record content for our digital gatherings because we won't be in person on December 25th and January 1st. And all of it is wonderful and beautiful. And I wouldn't have it any other way, but it's chaos. It seems like no matter how good our intentions are, there is something about Christmas that just adds an extra level of chaos, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes we know it's coming, but regardless, chaos. And truly, this is unlike, this is not unlike the very first Christmas. The very first Christmas was actually full of chaos in and of itself. On the first Christmas, the entire world was in chaos and everybody was ready to just get back to normal. In an effort to systematize and modernize and get an updated idea of who should be paying taxes and how much they should be paying, like who is actually even still alive on the earth, this is what it says in Luke chapter 2. The Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was to figure out, honestly, who's still alive. Like, we know that you were born at some point, but are you still alive? And if you are, are you paying taxes? And are you paying the right amount of taxes? I think you should probably be paying more taxes. So this set the world into a tornado spiral of chaos. Because how it worked was everyone was required to register in the town in which they were born. Sounds simple enough if you never left your hometown, but if you were one of the people who yourself moved or someone in your family moved, then all of a sudden you're having to report back to your hometown to register with the government because they wanted to know, honestly, are you paying enough money? That's really what it is. Are you paying enough money? This journey to where people were born this chaotic trip is actually what set the stage for the very first Christmas. Because really, in those days, there was no Christmas. There was only 
chaos. Travel was expensive and dangerous, and the consensus about the census was that people were ready to get back home and get back to normal. But unbeknownst to them, unbeknownst to the majority of the human world, with the exception of just a handful of people, the world would never be normal again because in the chaos of the census, a baby was born. A child whose birth would have geopolitical implications, not for a generation, but for all generations, for all humankind, because this child wasn't just any child. John chapter 1 tells us the word, this divine gift from heaven, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There was now divinity amidst our dwelling. And here's the interesting thing. History even carries this out. Every single person who would interact with this child from the time of his birth to the time of his death would become a footnote in his story. Peasants, governors, kings, even Caesar. It didn't matter who you were. Every single person who would intersect with him became a footnote in his story. Because unbeknownst to everyone except a very small group of people, on that night, a king would be secreted into the world. Not a religious figure, a king. A king who would disturb and reverse the order of everything. A king who would lay down his life for his subjects instead of requiring that his subjects lay down their life for him. And then that king would say to his subjects, now lay down your lives for one another. Even if it's your enemy, this king would turn everything upside down. And he would do so not as a religious figure, not just as a savior, but as a king. The kingship, the lordship, the right to ruleship of Jesus is often lost on us. It's lost on us because of what culture has done to Jesus, but unfortunately, I think it's even more so lost on us because of what church collectively has done to Jesus. For many of us, and maybe this is your experience, Jesus has been reduced to a phone a friend moment. Like I'm in an emergency, I'm in a bind, I guess I'll call Jesus and see if he can help. He's been reduced to a backup plan. I've tried everything else. I might as well try Jesus. He's reduced to a conscience reliever. Like if I just check the boxes, then I'm okay with God, and I'll carry on with my merry way. We've reduced him to just a comforter. He gives us the warm fuzzies when we're in need. But while Jesus is right to rule your life and my life, his right to rule as a king was lost on us, it was never lost on Mary or Joseph. When the angel appeared to Mary to describe to her the nature of this child that she was about to have, that phone a friend, that backup plan, that conscience reliever, that comforter, it was none of some of that, but it was certainly more than all of that. This is what the angel said in Luke chapter 1. Don't be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now, we can't miss this because we are operating in a world where we know his name. We know who Jesus is. When people say Jesus, chances are other people know who we're talking about. But when the angel says this, it was so meaningful to Mary because she would have known that for us, it's an English version of a Latin name. They came from a Greek name. They came from a Hebrew name that she would have known as Yeshua, which means Joshua or leader, sometimes even warrior. So from the first moment that Mary learns of this child, she already knows this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary birth. This is no ordinary situation, no ordinary happening. This is something special. And the angel goes on to say, he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. This was royal language. This was a royal title. He would be the son of the supreme king of all kings. And if there was any doubt about his royalty, listen to this. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, Israel's second king. And he will reign over Israel forever. The angel explains to Mary that she was giving birth to a king, a ruler, a commander, a lawgiver, a judge, no mere forgiver of sins or just a point of reference, a king. And what the angel says next is what we see rolled out throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts and actually throughout all of human history. The angel concludes with this, his kingdom, Mary, the kingdom of your son will never end. Your son will always be a king. He will always have a kingdom, which means Jesus is still a king today. There is no end. The question that I have to wrestle with every day, that you have to wrestle with every day, as we read scripture, as we pray, as we strive to live a Christ-centered life, when we wake up in the morning and decide what our lives are going to look like, the decisions that we're going to make, how we're going to spend our time and our money, how we choose to prioritize the question that we have to wrestle with, and at the very least should answer honestly to ourselves, is Jesus my king? I know that he's a king. I know that he's the king, but is he my king? Or have I followed the path of culture? Have I followed the path of tradition? Have I reduced Jesus to a conscience reliever? Have I reduced Jesus to someone I just call in case of an emergency? Have I reduced Jesus to an icon, to a cross around my neck or a tattoo on my wrist? Have I reduced him to a last resort? The unsettling thing about Jesus and the unusual fact about him being king is this. He is the king who allows us to decide. He is the king who invites rather than intrudes. So when you choose or when I choose 
not to follow the king, you choose and I choose not to participate in his kingdom here on earth. Regardless of what I believe and regardless of what I think about the fact that he has forgiven my sin, when I choose not to submit to the king, I choose not to participate in his kingdom in this world as it is reflected in heaven. Which means when I opt out, I miss out. When you opt out, you miss out. When we do that, faith is reduced to doctrine. Faith is reduced to religion. You'll be a Christian in the modern sense of the word, but not in the sense that the word was originated. You'll say your prayers to an invisible God. You'll ask forgiveness from an invisible God. You will live your life while missing out on what only comes to those who participate in his kingdom and submit to his rulership. On that first Christmas, in the midst of all the chaos, which was honestly just a distraction, a diversion from the main event, a king had been secreted into the world. And it was a plan that was perfectly executed. If not for the sincere, somewhat confused magi, Mary and Joseph's secret would have stayed a secret probably for the next 30 years. Here's what happened in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now this is Herod the Great that we're talking about. And unless you studied first century history, you might not know a lot about Herod. He really was great. Herod rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He was an exquisite architect, an extraordinary military strategist, an extraordinary general. He was as brilliant as he was ruthless. And above all, he was absolutely committed to preserving his legacy and dynasty through his children. His plan was that one day his kids would become kings. So the story continues. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. From as best as we can tell, the Magi were actually court advisors from different kingdoms in Persia or Arabia. Sometimes it's assumed that it was both. And these men studied ancient texts studied the sky, studied the stars, studied the movement of planets, looking for divine messages. Unlike the song that we sing, they were not kings. That's just a third century folklore there. And we don't actually know how many of them there were. We celebrate that there were three just because there were three gifts, but some scholars assume that there were 30, some assume hundreds. We don't know how big the crowd actually was, and we don't know their names. And this one might burst your bubble. They were not actually following a star, which explains why they showed up in the wrong town. They traveled for hundreds of miles and wound up in Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, what they found odd was Nobody was talking about this king. From their study, from what they thought, this should have revolutionized the world. And they roll up to the place where they think everybody should know, and no one is talking about it. The text says, they got to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Somehow it was not lost on them what had happened. 
a king had been secreted into the world. And since he was a Jewish king, of course, they went to Jerusalem. This is how we know they didn't follow the star. Scripture continues, we saw his star as it rose, past tense, we saw it as it rose, and have come to worship him. We saw his star, brand new star, and we knew that it signaled the birth of a king, and we believe it was a Jewish king. So we've come to the logical place of Jerusalem. And they were asking around, and nobody knew, and they were just so baffled by the fact that nobody was talking about this star or this baby. But word spread quickly. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Why? Well, the birth of a rabbi, not a big deal. We got rabbis all over town, scooting around, doing a great job. Birth of a teacher, not a big deal. We got lots of teachers. What's one more? We love that. Great for us. The birth of a religious figure, they come and go. We're cool with that. The birth of a prophet, there were so many prophets, and, and we love hearing what prophets have to say, but the birth of a king, that signaled a regime change. That could be an insurrection. The birth of a king often led to civil unrest or even civil war. And for Herod, the birth of a king threatened his dynasty. It threatened his legacy. And if you know anything about King Herod, you know that he was not one to sit idly by and just see what happens and then make a decision. He was not one to just wait it out. In fact, he maintained power for over 40 years because he was proactive and he was ruthless. So he did what should have been expected of him. But what he does next actually tips us off to something about Jesus that most of us, unfortunately, might miss. In verse 4, it says, He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? He gets all the religious people, all the smarty pants together and says, Okay, you've heard the rumor. I've heard the rumor. Not only is it a rumor, but I think the stars in the sky have actually proclaimed this miracle, and it could only mean one thing. So tell me, all you smart, bookish people, where is the Messiah prophesied to be born? Why did he insert the term Messiah? Everyone was looking for a king, so why would Herod say Messiah? Messiah is Hebrew for the phrase or idea of anointed one. The Greek equivalent that shows up in our Greek New Testament is the word Christ. This is profoundly important. Christ is not a name. Christ is not a nickname. Christ is not just a description. The term Christ is a title. It's the title for God's final king. The original Greek text of Matthew 2-4 actually says, where will the Christ be born? Because as they gathered around his table in his courts, Herod was saying, apparently, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king has finally touched down on planet Earth. It's been prophesied 
So you smart people tell me, where did the prophecy say this was going to happen? A king had been born, but unlike us, they didn't yet know his name. And here's why that's important. We have allowed the person to define the term. Meaning, if someone talks about Christ, we immediately go, oh, Jesus. Yeah, I know him. I know exactly who we're talking about. Jesus Christ, Christ, Jesus, our Lord. Yeah, I get it. I know what we're talking about. We've allowed the person to define the term rather than allowing the term Christ to define the person. Because Christ is Jesus's title. It's not his last name. It means Jesus God's anointed one, Jesus, the king. A king had been born, but not just any king, the king. Anointed not by another king, anointed not by a prophet or a priest, a king anointed and appointed by God, the father, the creator of all things. Appointed by God to establish as we read in the Gospels and the book of Acts, a kingdom that was not of this world, but for this world. A kingdom that would be characterized as an other's first kingdom. And Herod suspected it. And he was right to be threatened by it. Because he knew what we might miss. When a king is born, people must choose. Before we close our time together today, I want to read you an excerpt from this very small book called The Case for Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And it's a small book because it's a compilation of radio talks that he gave, and he took excerpts from each and put it together and wrote a book because he's C.S. Lewis. So, like, what else is he going to do with his spare time but write another book? And it's a tiny book compiled from these talks. But what he says in the next few sentences is so powerful. And I think it takes us directly to the Christmas story and the idea of the authority of Jesus. And this is what he says. I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it would be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time... It will be God without disguise. He's saying not a baby in a manger, not a teacher on a hillside, not someone who stops to bend down to serve and comfort the lowly and the weak. This is no longer a man who can be bound and flogged and crucified. C.S. Lewis says the next time he shows up as king, it will be without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror in every creature. Why? Because those who did not choose on that day, in that moment, will wish that they had. He continues with this. It will be too late then to choose your side. 
Because there is no use in saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. When the king is born, you must choose. C.S. Lewis says this at the end. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. On Christmas, a king was born. For those of us who believe, the question is every single day, is he my king? Is he your king? Is, have you submitted to the king? Have you accepted his invitation? Have you accepted the invitation not simply to believe, but to follow? Herod believed. In fact, Matthew 2, verse 4, it says, He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. That's not too far. I was only about six miles from here. We're pretty close. So then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Why the exact time? Because Herod wanted to know the exact age of the infant king. And once he discovered the age of the infant king, he would act accordingly. Because unlike some of us, he believed a king had been secreted into the world. But one thing was for certain. He would never bend a knee to another king. He would not surrender his own will. He certainly wouldn't surrender his legacy. Verse 8 says, Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. The child whose kingdom it would turn out would not be of this world, but it would be for this world. Because in this king, heaven met earth in a way that only storytellers could imagine. God became one of us to dwell among us, not just so that we could know we'll make it to heaven when we die, but so that we could know in this life and be on behalf of other people the kingdom values of God. We can be a part of a kingdom here on earth where God cares about those over whom he reigns. Into this world was born a king who would later extend the invitation and is still extending it to all of us today. Will you follow? Will you surrender? Will you acknowledge me as more than just a sin forgiver? More than just a conscience cleanser, more than just a good luck charm, more than just a last resort in the midst of all of life's chaos. Will you acknowledge me as your king? And if you do, you will be invited to participate in the kingdom of God. On Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king. But the question every single day, is he my king? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you.
And we are overwhelmed by your goodness, overwhelmed by just the thought of who you are. God, as we dig into this story of your son here on earth, the only words that seem enough are thank you. And we know that even still, that could never be enough. For sending your son to this earth to live a life of example, to be our king who will forever reign. Thank you. Jesus, would you remind us every single day this week of these words, that when we wake up, we are burdened with the thought of sacrificing our lives for you, that we are overwhelmed by making choices and decisions that would honor you, that when we think, how should I spend my time? How should I spend my resources? How should I spend my money? We focus in on you, our King, our Lord forever. God, let these words challenge us and change us as we go through this Christmas season where we are honoring your son. Let us be forever changed by our king. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.